All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on 1 Corinthians. In this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 through 40. It's the final chunk in this, not only this chapter, but in this overall large section where Paul has been dealing with issues primarily related to sexuality and marriage. The man who's sleeping with his stepmom, uh, the men in the church who are visiting prostitutes. And now here in chapter 7, another segment of the church that's raising questions about the, the goodness of marriage and sex in itself. And so Paul's been addressing these questions. And here in chapter seven, he's already addressed the issue of celibacy and marriage and said, in, in short, stop it. Stop depriving each other. Um, that once you choose to get married, you've chosen not to be celibate. He's also uh, addressed the topic of divorce and said that believers should do their best to remain married, even if married to a pagan unbeliever. And then coming out of those topics, he gave that center portion where he really gave his rationale for a lot of his advice, and that is your relationship with the Lord is determined not by your social status, but by simply your relationship with the Lord. And so your holiness and your spirituality has more to do with God's calling you to himself and you being in Christ and keeping the commands of God than whatever social standing you have. And so now in this section, 25 through 40, Paul begins a new topic. Notice that verse 25 begins with the phrase, now concerning. And remember that we said at the very beginning of chapter 7 that Paul's addressing topics and questions that they wrote about. He began chapter 7 in verse 1 by saying, now concerning the things about which you wrote. So the phrase now concerning becomes a transition to a new topic, apparently, from things they wrote about in their letter. So we have that here, now concerning, and he's going to address that topic here. You'll see it in 8 chapter 1, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. We'll see it in 12 1 as well, now concerning spiritual gifts. And so that phrase, now concerning, seems to be a way of referencing things about which they wrote. And so now, here in 725, we change to discuss a related matter to the issue of sexuality and marriage, apparently uh, something they wrote about, and that is, well, what about young people who've never been married and who are betrothed? And that's really the topic that he's going to address in this paragraph. And some of the things he says are a little confusing and unclear. And the reason for that is because we need to remember we're reading somebody else's mail. Like, 1 Corinthians was not originally written to us. Even though it's God's word for us, it was originally written to the church in Corinth who had written Paul a letter and he's addressing some challenges and struggles they're having in the church and he's doing so in their language, their words, addressing their questions and we're not them. And that's why some of Paul's words are unclear to us. They would have been crystal clear to to the Corinthians, because this letter was originally written to them. And so it's important for us to remember that, that we're reading somebody else's mail. And in this particular section, there are two specific phrases that Paul uses that have actually sparked quite a bit of discussion about what he was referring to. One of those phrases is, in view of the present distress. What does he mean by that? And then not long after that phrase, he says, The time has been shortened. What does he mean by that? And so if you read those phrases and wonder, man, what is Paul talking about? Guess what? You're not alone. The problem is 
there's been a lot of distance from when uh, the Corinthians asked Paul these questions and what Paul said to them and us. And we just struggle to understand exactly what he's referring to. And unfortunately, those two phrases have to do with a lot of the advice he gives here. And man, it would sure be nice to know. But we don't have exactly what he's referring to. Nevertheless, Paul's overall message in this paragraph is still clear. And we can still hear Paul's advice to the Corinthians on this topic. What about young betrothed people? So he opens in verse 25 by saying, now concerning virgins. There's that phrase, now concerning, new topic. And he uses the word virgins. And that word virgins is... uh, Obviously, there's a range of meanings for that word, but what becomes very clear in this paragraph as we read down through it is that Paul is using that word probably because they used that word in their letter. He's using that word to refer not just to any old virgin. He seems to be using it to refer to people who are betrothed. And the word virgin specifically refers to females who are betrothed, but he's also going to address the males in this paragraph as well. So now concerning virgins, young betrothed women. I have no command of the Lord, but I'm offering direction as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. And what we'll see as Paul's paragraph here on this topic unfolds is that Paul slowly builds up to his very specific advice on the topic of virgins or young betrothed people. He gives some general thinking and principles in verses 26 through 35. And then in verses 36 through 38, Paul gives very clear and very specific advice with verse 38 really being the summary of the final conclusion on the whole matter to make it perfectly clear. So Paul's overall point is clear here on this topic of betrothed people. And what seems to be the situation, like here's the thing the Corinthians were wrestling with is, well, there are these young betrothed people in the church who are now questioning whether or not they should go through with their marriages. That must have been something that they wrote in their letter, and Paul now is addressing that topic. And so, as I noted, the word virgin here refers to young betrothed women. He's going to address betrothed men as well, as we'll see as we go. And what Paul does is he gives them the freedom in this matter of whether or not to go through with their marriage or not to choose. But he gives some guidelines for how to think about it. And there's a good chance that those who are wrestling with this issue are probably being influenced by the same negative view of marriage and sex that Paul's already been addressing in this chapter. It's good for a man not to touch a woman, right? That's what started the whole chapter, and now he's addressing things related to it. So there's a high likelihood that some of these people are being um, really influenced by those in the church who have sort of a negative view of marriage and sex and sexuality. And so Paul is actually very cautious in how he deals with this subject. In fact, notice here in verse 25, he says, on this topic, I have no command of the Lord, but I'm offering direction as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Like I have no command of the Lord. In contrast to what he said just a couple verses above when he said, I say to you, well, not I, but the Lord. Here it's like, well, I'm actually saying this and we have no clear command of the Lord. And so he says, I don't have that, but what I want to offer you is my direction or literally my judgment 
as one who is trustworthy. And so he's offering his judgment, his advice as one who is responsible and trustworthy. He'll end the section by saying, and I think I have the spirit of God, as one who speaks with God's spirit. And so when you read this section, you'll see things like Paul says, I think, or I want you to be free from concern, or do this, but if you do the opposite, you're not sinning. And so all of this appears to be Paul's pastoral advice, where he has a bit of a preference, but he recognizes there's freedom, and this topic really isn't an issue of strict morality. It's not an issue of right and wrong. And so he's going to give pastoral advice on this topic of what about betrothed people who are now wrestling with whether or not they should go through with their marriages. And he begins the discussion of that by applying the principle from 17 through 24, remain as you are, by applying that principle uh, to this topic of young betrothed people. So he says in verse 26, I think then, notice, again, he's giving his judgment. Here's my what I think is my trustworthy judgment on this matter. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Hear the repetition of the word good. Uh, probably echoing with a real hint of an allusion to that opening statement in verse 1, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Um, and he, he, he doesn't agree with that. He's already rebutted that idea earlier in the chapter. But here's something that is good. It's good for a person to remain as he is. As Paul just illustrated with circumcision and slavery in verses 17 through 24, here's something that's good. It's good for a person in this situation of betrothal to remain as he is. And he says that in view of the present distress. So in view of the present distress, here's something that I think is good. Um, and that has caused a lot of people to wrestle with, well, what does he mean by the present distress? Some have actually suggested it should be translated like, like impending crisis or impending issue. Like it's, it's something future, but in the relatively near future. Some have even suggested that what maybe Paul was thinking of was like the second coming, which could happen any day. And there are people who, in my opinion, mistakenly assume that Paul believed the second coming would happen during his lifetime. But it's pretty clear from Paul's letters, even his earliest letters, all the way through Paul's letters, that he shows uncertainty about when Jesus is going to return. He, he didn't know for sure. It could happen during his lifetime, but he didn't necessarily expect that wasn't giving advice based on that. In fact, Paul never advises people to abandon basic life responsibilities and sit around and wait for Jesus's return. So I definitely don't think that's what he's talking about here. And really the word that's translated present should be translated that way. It doesn't mean impending or about to happen. Paul consistently, in his writings, Paul consistently uses this word for something that's present, that is happening at the present time. And the word distress comes from a word that means necessity, but then it was used of like pressure caused by necessities and then came to be used for various kinds of crises or distress as well. So Paul is apparently referring to some difficulty or distress that was affecting the people of Corinth, including the Christians in Corinth. And we're just not completely sure what that means. Because we didn't live in Corinth in AD 54 or 55, right? 
Bruce Winter, a historian and sociologist, suggests that it was the ongoing effects of a large-scale famine that struck the Mediterranean world in the early 50s. And that's causing all sorts of economic hardships and various things like that. That's possible. Good possibility. We just don't know for sure. There's just been a lot of historical distance, and so we're not totally sure. But there is apparently some sort of present difficulty impacting the church. And Paul says, in view of that, I think it's probably good for you to remain as you are. So whatever that crisis is, Paul's advice to young betrothed people about marriage and singleness in this section, Paul's advice is given in light of whatever that present distress is that's creating pressure for the Corinthian church and the Corinthian people. So in view of that, Paul says, remain as you are. And then he gets specific, verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Don't seek a wife. Remain as you are in view of this present crisis and distress that you're experiencing. Now, how does this sentence totally fit here? Well, the language is actually a bit ambiguous, and so there are a couple options. One is, in some ways, Paul could be summarizing what he said earlier in the chapter. Are, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to get divorced. He's already said that in verses 10 and following, right? Are you released from a wife? Well, don't seek a new wife. Stay single. That's his advice. So it could be restating what he said earlier in the chapter, or... Paul is actually still on topic of young betrothed people, and the present translation that I'm reading obscures that. I tend to think that's the better option. The clue to me that he's not merely restating what he said in verses 10 and following about marriage and divorce is the word released. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Don't seek a wife. That word that's translated released here in the New American Standard, as well as the NIV, it's translated free in the ESV. That word is never used for divorce elsewhere. It's not the word that's used for divorce up above in this chapter. Uh, it's a, a word that can mean, in some context, to be freed from a binding contract. And that's what betrothal was. Betrothal in their day and age was a binding contract. Um, and so I think that's what Paul's probably talking about. That's the specific subject that Paul's addressing in this paragraph. And so I, I and the word wife is just the generic word for woman. Uh, it can mean woman or it can mean wife. That's just the way the word worked. And so are you bound to a woman? Don't seek to, to be released from that contract. Are you released from a woman? Well, then don't seek one, right? I think he's probably talking about betrothal still, even here in verse 27. Either option works, but in view of the context and what he's actually talking about in this paragraph, I think he's probably talking still about betrothed people. So he says, remain as you are. In view of the present distress and crisis that's afflicting you, just stay where you're at. Don't, uh, don't seek a wife. Don't you know, seek to undo a marriage or don't seek to undo your betrothal per se. But, but what if a young man or a young woman does get married? Is that wrong? Well, look at verse 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Again, notice Paul's kind of hedging on some of this. This is pastoral advice. It's not clear cut. It's not necessarily an issue of right and wrong. So here's my advice. Remain as you are. I think that's good. But if you get married, you haven't sinned. So the you there is a young betrothed male. If you marry, you haven't sinned. And if a virgin marries, a young betrothed female, she hasn't sinned. So this question that 
apparently was causing enough distress in the Corinthian church to cause them to write to Paul about it. This question is really a morally neutral question. It's not a matter of right and wrong. You're not sinning either way. So if a young betrothed man marries, not a sin. If a young betrothed uh, woman marries, not a sin. Yet, he goes on to say in verse 28, yet such people as yourselves, that is young people like you at the present time, in the present distress, young people who get married, as he just mentioned, yet such people as yourselves will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you that. Uh, so the such people there are the, the young people who do get married in the first half of verse 28. And he says, um, if, if you do that, it's going to bring with it certain difficulties and hardships in this present life. And Paul likely means that, not just in a general sense, although there are certain difficulties and hardship that come with getting married, uh, certain pressures that come with getting married. Um, it changes things, right? But Paul likely means that, uh, especially in view of whatever the present crisis is that they are facing. And Paul, as a good pastor, says, I just want to spare you from some of the extra hardships you're going to have to endure in the midst of this present crisis if you choose to get married. So it's not right. It's not wrong. You're free to choose, but might be best for you to stay as you are. Now, Paul's words then in verses 27 and 28 demote marriage a bit. In their cultural context, marriage was held up uh, for the sake of honor and status and wealth and all of that. And Paul's words demoted a bit. Um, in our context, at least in my culture, marriage is often idealized as this thing of great romantic love and incredible companionship. And again, Paul's words demoted a bit. Like, in view of the present crisis, probably should stay as you are and stay single. If you get married, it's not a sin, but it is going to bring some trouble. Um, and Paul's going to go on to say that marriage is actually part of this world that's passing away. And so for all its goodness, it does bring difficulty, generally speaking, but especially in view of various crises that come upon you, like they're experiencing right then and there. And I just appreciate Paul's forthrightness about this. We need to have really a realistic understanding of marriage and singleness. And so he says, you haven't sinned, just know what you're getting into, that there will be some additional hardships because of it. Then Paul transitions in verse 29 to a really interesting little paragraph, challenging paragraph that we have to make sure we listen to closely and hear in the overall context of 1 Corinthians 7 and in the whole context of Paul's letters in total and really in the context of the whole Bible. We have to hear this in its place, all right, and not turn it into something that it's not. So here in the immediate context, Paul is explaining what he just said. So notice verse 29, he says, Now I say this, I say that you're going to have difficulties. I tell you it's probably best to stay as you are, but if you get married, it's not a sin. I say this, brothers and sisters, um, that the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as those who had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I'm guessing if you're like me, when you first read that paragraph, you're like, what in the world is he talking about? Like those who have wives should live like they didn't have wives. What? And then everything else he says. 
And so here, Paul gives four examples from everyday life that he says Christians should live as if they were not. So marriage is one, the first example, then mourning and rejoicing, and then buying and possessing, and then using the world. He gives these four kind of everyday life experiences and says you should live as if they were not. Now, what does he mean? Remember, this has to be read in context, the immediate context and the context of all of Paul's letters. So when he says, those who have wives should be as though they didn't, well, we already know what that cannot mean. It cannot mean ignore your spouse and be celibate. Why? Because Paul's already completely argued against that in the first 10 verses or eight verses of chapter seven. Not only that, when you read Ephesians chapter 5 and elsewhere in Paul's writings, Paul has some pretty good advice about marriage and how to invest in it and how to love your spouse well. So Paul can't mean what it sounds like, literally he means, when read in context. Um, So we have to pay attention to this and Paul's rhetorical point by this little paragraph in verses 29 through 31. So notice the opening and the closing line. That's our clue to what Paul's point is. The time has been shortened, he says, and then he ends with, the present form of this world is passing away. Um, This is a consistent New Testament theme, that we live in a time period where the present form of the world is passing away. Uh, For example, 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17 says something very similar. John there writes, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the, the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God continues forever. John's thinking there in John, 1 John 2 and Paul's thinking overlap significantly here. John says, since the world and its desires are passing away, well, that affects what you should love and how you should live. And Paul really is essentially saying the same thing here in 1 Corinthians 7, 29 and following. By saying the time is shortened and that the world is passing away, what Paul is saying is we're living in the last stage of God's plans before the renewal of all things and our eternal destiny. We're in the last stage. In other words, it could end at any moment. Like today could be the last day that we have before uh, Jesus returns, all things are made new, and we enter into eternity. Um, And so... The form of this present world, when that happens, it's going to come to an end. And that reality ought to change our whole relationship with this present world. That's John's point in 1 John 2. That's really Paul's point here. Our identity, our value, our satisfaction, our meaning, our hope, all of that must not be found in this world, the relationships of this world, the things of this world, but in the world to come. So Paul's examples, including marriage, all involve things in this present world that need to be viewed in light of that fact, that we're in the last stage and thus the time is short. Any day the end could arrive. And that sort of demotes or relativizes our relationships and the things of this world, even marriage. So marriage, marriage isn't the end-all be-all of our life. 
In fact, marriage won't continue into the age to come, as Jesus made clear when he says that in the renewal of all things, there's neither marriage nor giving in marriage. That's, that relationship is for this present time period. It's not for the world to come. So live your marriage. Love your spouse. Do it now for the Lord's sake and do it now in light of eternity. But don't, don't put all your eggs in the basket of marriage. That's the idea. What about mourning and rejoicing? Well, both are parts of life. They're real parts of life. In fact, Paul says, right, mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. He tells us that in Romans chapter 12. It's not like those are wrong things. We need to enter into each other's mourning and grief. We need to enter into each other's joy, Paul says in Romans 12. But neither mourning nor rejoicing in this world are the final word. So we mourn in hope. And we rejoice even in the things of this world, but we hold those joys loosely, knowing that they're only foretastes of the eternal joy that, that is coming someday soon. What about buying and possessing? Well, we can have stuff, but we don't want stuff to have us. And so we buy stuff, but we don't necessarily possess it. We hold it loosely. Again, identity and value, satisfaction and meaning doesn't come from what we have. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, instruct those who are wealthy not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So we have, but we don't possess and own, and we aren't owned by our stuff. We live in the world, and we use the world, but not fully, because we know there's a new world coming, and we're seeking to be conformed to that world. So all of this, when Paul, what Paul says here in verses 29 through 31, all of this um, is intended to make sure we don't make the experiences of this world and this life absolute. There's more to life than this world. There's more to life than marriage or singleness. There's more to life than pleasure or loss, than joy and pain. There's more to life than money and stuff and possessions. So enjoy these things but hold them loosely and keep them in their proper perspective. That's Paul's point here in verses 29 through 31. And then how should that affect us? Well, Paul tells us what he has in mind in the very next sentence. Look at verse 32. He says, but I want you to be free from concern. And that word concern in Greek can mean concern in sort of a positive sense, or it can mean anxiety and stress and worry in the negative sense. That one word covers both of those. So what does it mean in light of verses 29 through 31 to live as if you weren't married or you didn't weep or you didn't rejoice or you didn't possess? Well, it means not to be anxious, like consumed by and anxious about all these things, just as Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. You need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So care about these things but do so trusting God and not being anxious about them. So what does that mean in view of the topic at hand here in 1 Corinthians 7? Well, here's what it means for the men. For the men, one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. And for the women... Well, the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. 
So Paul sees singleness in both of these cases with unmarried men and married men and unmarried women and virgins and married women. Paul sees singleness as allowing for undivided focus on the Lord's work and the Lord's kingdom. How he may please the Lord, right? How she may be holy. That is set apart or dedicated. That's the idea of holy here. Set apart, dedicated fully to the Lord. Singleness allows you some undivided uh, focus on the Lord's work and the Lord's kingdom. Marriage requires one also to focus on pleasing their spouse and thus being divided. Now, this is really important in view of everything Paul has already said in this chapter about marriage and everything he said in this chapter about sexuality and not being a sin, right? It bringing your husband and your children into contact with holy things. Um, in view of what he said in this chapter and what he says elsewhere in his letters, I think it's terribly important that we don't hear what Paul just said in verses 33 through 34. I think it's terribly important that we don't hear what he's saying as this being a negative or a bad thing. It's just a down-to-earth practical reality. It's not that, well, singleness, therefore, really is more spiritual. That's actually a problem that he's trying to address. And Paul prefers singleness, and he prefers it because it does allow you uh, undivided focus. But that doesn't mean... Marriage is an unholy thing, an unspiritual thing, a negative or a bad thing. It's just a down-to-earth practical reality that marriage is such an intimate relationship that it does take up your cares and your attention. It's not bad and it's not unholy. It's just different. And I think that's really important that we don't mishear what Paul is saying, again, in the total context of this chapter and what he says about marriage in other places. So, Paul sees singleness as allowing for undivided focus on the Lord's work and the Lord's kingdom. Marriage brings about a division. You've got to give yourself to pleasing your spouse and taking care of your spouse, and there's just some more down-to-earth practical things you've got to deal with. And for Paul, that's one of the reasons why he prefers singleness. Um, but but for him, it's like, but this is an issue of freedom. It's not a, this is a morally neutral thing. It's not right or wrong. And so he says in verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And when Paul says, I say this for your benefit, I suspect he has primarily the whole church's benefit in mind, not merely you individually. Again, they're more of a collectivist culture. And so the group is deeply affected by the individual, the individual by the group. And what he seems to be getting at is the whole church will benefit if they listen and follow what Paul is saying. Why? Well, because right now there's some conflict and some tension and some worrying and some wrangling within the church about this issue. And Paul says that there's freedom here. Um, there are relative advantages and disadvantages to both. So quit being anxious about all of this, right? Like I say this uh, because I don't want you to be anxious. I don't want you to be consumed and concerned and worried and anxious about all this. And all of that will benefit you all. Not only you individually, it will have that benefit, but it'll also benefit you all there in the church. He also says, I, I, I say this, not to put a restraint on you. I'm not trying to tell you exactly what to do. I'm, I'm giving you some freedom here, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And when he says promote what is appropriate, in context of both what precedes this and what follows this, what he means is 
I want you to choose what seems appropriate to you, what seems best to you, singleness or marriage. Paul prefers one, for him, singleness. But either way, you're not sinning. And so I want you to, to, to choose what's appropriate for you, but I want you to do that in such a way that it's based on undistracted devotion to the Lord. So a betrothed person who's anxious about, should they get married? If I get married, will I be sinning? And will that make me less holy? You're not really focused on the Lord if, if you're anxious about that. Or a betrothed person who's living as if uh, their identity and value and future depended on getting married, right? Like, not focused on the Lord. So make your choice fully, Paul says, in view of Jesus and the fact that the present form of this world is passing away, and then serve the Lord in and through that state, whether that state be singleness or whether that state be marriage. So with that then, that leads Paul to a summary conclusion to make perfectly clear the freedom they have in this matter. Here's what I mean when I say promote what is appropriate. I want you to choose. Look at verse 36. He says, but if anyone thinks he is acting dishonorably towards his virgin, if she has passed her youth and it ought to be so, let him do what he wishes. He's not sinning. Let them marry. Now, clarify a few things here. When he says acting dishonorably. This word dishonorably is only found here in verse 36 and in chapter 13, verse 5 in the entire New Testament. And that word means to act morally rude or to act in an inappropriate way. So if anyone thinks he's acting in an inappropriate and morally kind of rude or compromising way towards the virgin he's betrothed to, that's the idea. If she is past her youth, and it ought to be so, let him do what he wishes. Let them get married. What does it mean when it says, if she is past her youth? Well, I actually think that's a poor translation here in the New American Standard. Other translations you'll see refer to sexual passions. And that's because what Paul literally says very discreetly is um, the, the, the phrase translates a, a word that means at the peak of, right? Like if She's at her peak or he's at his peak. That's the idea of the word. And so the idea probably is that he and she are at their peak. Like their sexual desires are strong. And that's why a lot of translations take it that way. And so here you are, you're at the peak of your sexuality and your sexual desire. And you're afraid you're going to act dishonorably and rude, morally speaking, towards your betrothed. Well, then just get married. You're not sinning. That's what he says in verse 36. On the other hand, what if you decide to stay single? We'll look at verse 37. But the one who stands firm in his heart, notice how many times he emphasizes this needs to be your own choice. Don't do it because somebody in the church is making you. Don't do it because you're being forced into it. This needs to be your own choice. The one who stands firm in his heart, if he is not under constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart. Four phrases to emphasize. This has to be your own choice. This has to be your choice. So four phrases to emphasize that. One who is like that is making his own choice freely, has authority over his own will to keep his own virgin. He will do well. What he means by to keep his own virgin is probably to keep her a virgin. If he decides, in other words, to end the betrothal, like I'm not going to do that. Um, and that becomes clear, particularly in verse 38, when he gives a real clear summary statement. So verse 37 refers to a young man and a young woman who are betrothed, and they decide uh, to end the betrothal. Maybe because she wants to, 
maybe because he feels he wants to, uh, whatever it is, they decide to end this, Paul says, then that's good. If you decide to do that, that's a good thing too. So verse 38, so then both the one who gives his own virgin in marriage does well, and the one who does not give her in marriage will do better. Um, I don't really like the phrase, give his own virgin in marriage. There has been some commentators who said, all of a sudden Paul talks about dads giving away their daughter in marriage, but the context seems to rule against that. This is a summary statement at the end of the argument. And Paul, there's been nothing about fathers giving away daughters. There's only been addressing betrothed young men and betrothed young women. And so the best way to read verse 38 is both the one who marries his betrothed, that is his own virgin, does well. And the one who does not marry will do better. That's Paul's preference is to stay single, particularly in view of the present crisis. And so whether you get married or you get not, both are good. In fact, the word does well actually is from the same root word as the word good that was mentioned earlier when he said, I think it's good if you stay as you are, but it's also good here if you get married. And so either way, this is a good thing. Not a, It's a morally neutral thing. You have freedom in it. Um, make your choice. Make sure it's your own free choice in this regard. And either way, it's a good thing. And then Paul just kind of throws in at the end what seems like a, a random little bit. But what about if your husband dies? He's kind of already mentioned this in passing up above. But here to wrap up the whole discussion of marriage and sexuality and all of that, Paul throws in in verse 39, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whomever she wishes, but do so only in the Lord. So if her husband dies, you're free to remarry. Just make sure you marry a fellow believer. Um, and then Paul ends in verse 40 by saying, now, in my opinion, she's happier if she remains as she is, his general principle. I think it's best for her just to remain single. And I also think that I have the spirit of God. So Paul's given his advice. He has a clear preference. He thinks singleness is preferable and, and he has reasons for that. But it's not a morally uh, loaded issue for him. It's morally neutral. It's not an issue of right or wrong. You're not sinning either way. You're free to remarry. Uh, if you're young and betrothed and you want to follow through with your, your contract to get married, do so. If you're young and betrothed and you decide, ah, we want to end this thing, then end it. Um, either way, you, you can please the Lord. All situations are good. Now, before we leave this section, let me just offer real briefly a little reflection on marriage, singleness, and devotion to the Lord. Paul is clearly addressing an issue that was troubling the Corinthian church troubling them in ways that we aren't always troubled. Their questions just aren't our questions. Nevertheless, Paul's reasoning here, I think, is incredibly helpful for us to meditate on. He advises them that they have freedom, but it's not self-serving freedom to do whatever they want. And that kind of freedom is so common nowadays. Well, I'm free to do what I want. I'm free to make my own choices. No one can tell me what to do. That's not the kind of freedom Paul's advising here. Paul's advising freedom that's based on this devotion to the Lord and the fact that the present form of the world is passing away. And so Paul's advice in this really important area of marriage and singleness and even remarriage is all driven by understand the times we live in, that the time is short, the Lord could return at any time, and marriage won't carry on to that. So don't put all your eggs in the basket of marriage. Don't put all your eggs in the basket of singleness. Give yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord, and then 
whatever state you're in, serve and honor the Lord there. Make him and his kingdom and the great eternal future he has for us, make all that primary. You're free to choose how you can best serve the Lord, whether married or single or remarried. Just do so knowing that this present world is passing away whatever you choose. And so Paul advises freedom, but he does so under the Lord and in light of eternity. All right, thanks for tuning in to this session of the Listener's Commentary on 1 Corinthians. As always, a huge uh, thank you to those of you who make this ministry possible by your generous support and donations. And if you've been impacted by this ministry and want to join the team of supporters, you can do so by going to listenerscommentary.com, listenerscommentary.com, clicking the Give tab, and you can set up a monthly recurring donation right there, or you can give a one-time donation right there. All donations are given in partnership with World Family Missions, a registered nonprofit. And let me just say in advance, thanks a ton for your support.